Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Will Haygood, whose latest book is Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World. There are nine Will Haygood books. There are biographies of Adam Clayton Powell, Sammy Davis Jr., Sugar Ray Robinson, There's Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed history, and Tigerland 1968-1969, which is about high school sports teams in Columbus, Ohio, and how the town came together during a very, very difficult period in race relations in America. In 2008, An article in the Washington Post called A Butler in the White House, which was turned into the 2013 film Lee Daniels' The Butler, and later became a book by Will Haygood called The Butler, A Witness to History. So, Will Haygood, we'll get a little into your career as a journalist, but I want to start, obviously, by talking about colorization. In the afterword to the book, you talk a little bit about how it came to be. So why don't we go back? What brought you to the idea of writing specifically about not just Hollywood, but how the black community views Hollywood? It's very nice of you to have me on your show. Thank you very much. It all actually started with a film. I was down in New Orleans in 2012 with the cast of The Butler, and it was a starry cast. It was Oprah Winfrey, Alan Rickman, Jane Fonda, Forrest Whitaker, Robin Williams, just an amazing cast. There were seven Oscar winners in that movie. It was directed by Lee Daniels. Anyway, one night there was a party. There was a soiree in the middle of filming, and I was in the kitchen at this house. Actually, it happened to have been happened to have been Sandra Bullock's house where one of the hosts of the soiree was staying. I looked around and I looked at this multiracial cast and I said to myself, my goodness, somebody needs to write about this moment. And because very rarely do you see multiracial cast in American movies. And the actor Terrence Howard was nearby and he walked over to me and he said, Will, you're the writer. You ought to write that book. And that really was the night that the seed was really planted. And I thought about it for the next three weeks. And I said to myself, it is worthy of a book, just a long, arduous history of Blacks in cinema. So that's how the book was born. As it turns out, the focus to a very great degree is more on Black audience response, along with talking about the films themselves, because you decided not to go into the entire history of people like Step and Fetch It, and the negative side of Black representation in Hollywood, but focus instead more on the positive side, as well as on how Black audiences see Hollywood. And that was a decision that came somewhere along the writing level? Yes. I wanted to show the reader 
and that Blacks had dreams, and especially when it comes to cinema, in a very real way, cinema helped ignite a lot of Black protests on the streets because you had a very vile, vulgar, racist 1915 movie called The Birth of a Nation, and that was about the aftermath of the Civil War. And the KKK were heroes in that movie, and they were ostensibly to save the white race from Black people. So you had city-to-city protests by Blacks and by a young civil rights organization, the NAACP, which hadn't been in existence that long. And so you had a whole community starting to come together against the very real backdrop of this racist movie that had a screening inside Woodrow Wilson's White House. And so you had everything coming together, psychology and sociology and crime, law enforcement, because there were many Blacks who sued in court to stop the movie from showing in those cities. They lost most of those battles, and the movie played for four consecutive years. It was a recruitment tool for the Ku Klux Klan. When we think about the movie Birth of a Nation, we do know about its racist history. We also know it was in many ways the first Hollywood epic, and it changed Hollywood from that perspective. It changed all movies from that perspective. But we don't hear at all about how the black community rose up against the film. That part of history is ignored. How did you find that information? Or did you know it already? It has been covered in newspaper articles of the day. You know, so I had to start digging through archives, newspaper articles from the 19, 1915, 1916, 1917. And it's been covered in some books, but it's true. American history simply ignores this movement and this cinematic movement, which was a big, big movement. And the more I started to look into it, the more I really realized that not only was this the beginning of civic action against art in America, negative art, but it gave a lot of people an opportunity to cut their teeth, to write essays about what was going on. And then, of course, there were four films made of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So you have Uncle Tom's Cabin, and you have The Birth of a Nation, and you have other racist movies that were backed by Hollywood. And that was the image of a whole race of people. At that particular time, The only black filmmaker, well, came a little bit later, but still during the silent era, was Oscar Michaud, and he was not Hollywood at all. He was working on his own because there were no black directors in Hollywood. Through the 20s, as he began working, was there notice of him at all? Because you focus a lot of the early part of your book, Colorization, on his career. Yes, there was notice from folk who were Black, people who wanted to see films, people who wanted to see narrative storytelling. But as far as the white media, he was completely ignored. He really is a gigantic figure in this book. He's one of the heroes of this book. He started his film career because he wanted to 
tackle what the birth of a nation had done to his people. So he said, well, let me make movies that are non-stereotypical movies, that have laughter, that have pain, and that have dignity. And so over the course of the next 30 years, he made movies. He went from silent to the talkies. Uh, his movies played to black audiences mostly. I imagine that there were some whites who went to the theater to see his films, but he got a great start by talking to black newspaper men, and they would write stories about him. Hey, there's a filmmaker who just landed in town. He has two movies <laughs> that he wants to show. I mean, he literally came out of South Dakota where he went in life to start his life as a farmer. Then he wrote these short stories. Then he said to himself, hey, I think I can turn my short stories into films. And then he did. But really, I mean, it is something out of its own own sort of movie. He went out west, very dangerous time. And as a farmer, he has some success, some failures. Then he starts writing at night. And then he gets this dream he can turn his short stories into movies. And he does. First silent movies and then talkies. You know, there was a hunger from Blacks to see themselves on the big screen in an honorable way. He filled the bill. You mentioned Black audiences. Is that what was known as the Chitlin circuit? Well, you know, sort of later, you know, most of the Chitlin circuit was stage shows, vaudeville. Film was new, especially for Black people. And so he had to muster up newspaper articles that people could read in Chicago, in St. Louis, in New York City to find out who this guy was. And he did that. He also inspired other filmmakers to start work. None achieved his level of success. He was a real motor. He was a real engine. He really was the godfather of Black cinema in this country. In the South, at that particular time, because this is before the Great Migration, were there movie theaters for Black people at all? Yes, there were a few, but some of those people would have to travel to larger cities to see Oscar Michaud's films. His films had very rare showings in the South. Although sometimes he would go to people's homes and he would show his movies on a screen and folks would just, you know, show up to watch the movies. There were lodge halls. There were forums for black civic clubs, you know, and they would have in events uh, where his movies would be shown. It had to be heartbreakingly hard for him to become a filmmaker, to become a successful filmmaker. He had threats against his life. Every city where he went to show his movies, he had to figure out where he was going to sleep that night. It was just very painful for him to survive and exist in this country. And he kept going. He kept going. Bless his heart. Well, hey, good. Let's move on into the 30s and 40s. This passing mention, but you don't really go into any depth about movies from MGM, Cabin in the Sky, Stormy Weather, Green Pastures, which came out around 1940-ish. Is there a reason why you decided to put that aside? Were those movies 
I mean, they were all black movies. Were they mostly ignored by the black populace at the time? No. I mean, the reason I think I didn't write as much about them is simply because many folks already know about those big, lavish musicals. And so I said to myself, I was going to write about periods in cinematic history that folks might not know much about. And so that's why. As you go through that era, it's fairly obvious that Hollywood was simply continuing the stereotypes all through the 30s and into the 40s. And then following World War II, we begin to get changes in the early 50s. I'd like you to talk a little about an actor named James Edwards, who could have been a major breakthrough actor, but his career was stopped dead in its tracks by HUAC. Yes, he was an amazing talent. He was black. He was handsome. He had one of the first lead roles in a non-stereotypical Hollywood movie that was called Home of the Brave. It was a war movie. He played a soldier who was psychologically haunted by constantly being called the N-word in his unit. It was a very powerful movie, the first of its kind, really. He got a lot of attention. There was thinking when that movie came out in the early 1950s, and that James Edwards might be the first serious black star from Hollywood, male star. But when it came out and he got wonderful reviews, there were very few movies about race at that time. It was so hard for the filmmakers to make that movie that they told executives at the studio that they were actually making another kind of movie that had nothing to do with race. I mean, they had to engage in subterfuge just to get this movie made. And so here you have the movie, it came out, Home of the Brave, and this very handsome black actor, James Edwards. But his career started to nosedive after that. He dated white women. That was a definite no-no in Hollywood. When the studios heard about that, they were outraged. He started drinking, and that hurt his career. There was a certain actress who was a very big Hollywood star, Lana Turner. She liked him a lot. She wanted to go out on the town with him. He told her that he couldn't do that, and for obvious reasons. And there was some kind of scuffle between him and her. Word got back to the studios that he had been involved in a scuffle with her, and that further hurt his career. He also refused to name names before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And so his career just kind of filtered out, and he he had a few small roles. His last role, he played the valet to General George Patton, who was played by George C. Scott in the 1970 movie. It was a nice role. He was very lovely in the role, but he died before the movie came out in an apartment in San Diego where he went to live to write scripts. He died alone. Paul Robeson, back in the 30s, began a film career, but I guess his politics and his outspokenness pretty much killed his career before it even got going. Is that pretty much right? Yes, you are absolutely right. He went to Russia. 
<laughs> and the studios didn't like that, of course. He was a gigantic figure. Uh, he was an all-American football player at Rutgers. He was a Shakespearean actor. He had large talents. His first major role was in the Oscar Michaud movie. He was a real talent, but he was also undercut by the system of Hollywood. He never had a chance. Well, hey, good. In the 1950s, of course, you had your first two great black actors uh, in the mainstream, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. You go into quite a bit of detail about both of them, particularly in the case of Poitier. He had to kind of be the perfect black man in order to achieve that in some ways, like Obama had to be the perfect black man as president. Ultimately, while he paved the way for people who came afterward, how much do you think that limited his career, always having to be perfect? I don't think it was his fault. I think it was the fault of the screenwriters in Hollywood. They wanted a magical, and I'll put this in quotes, air quotes, a magical Negro. And so those were the scripts that he was sent. All of the script writers were white. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the scripts weren't lovely because they were. I still love Lily's Other Field, the movie that Sidney Poitier won his Oscar for. And of course, he made some seminal movies, but he was more than an actor. When Sidney Poitier was on screen, he was really teaching white Americans about race and about Black people. He had to shoulder that burden. It was a big burden, but whites did not live around Blacks. It was a very segregated nation. There were still laws in the 50s where Blacks and whites couldn't marry in many, many, many states. And so the idea of Blackness was foreign to white Americans. And so you had a movie like Lily's Other Field, and you had a black man, Homer Smith, and the character that Sidney Poitier played, who comes upon a group of East German nuns who are living in the Southwest, and, and they're trying to build a chapel, and he helps them. And But there's no reference in that movie to his race, which is probably how the movie got made. But then you you know, swing forward four years, 1967, and you had a trio of movies, Sidney Poitier, that was astounding as far as, I guess, the learning curve in this country about race. You had In the Heat of the Night, he was a Black detective in the South who was passing through the South. He was from Philadelphia. In the Heat of the Night, Rod Steiger, Sidney Poitier. Then you had To Sir With Love, he was a Black teacher in England. And then you had uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where Sidney Poitier was a black high achiever who was going to marry a white woman. Those are three important movies to chart the learning curve of whites in this country. Yes, it was an edge to some of those movies, but Sidney Poitier always played the upstanding righteous guy. He always did. In the Heat of the Night, when the detective Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, was slapped by the white man. He slaps him right back. I mean, you could hear in movie theaters at that time, people gasp. They gasped. 
we, <laughs> I mean, it was such a shock that he, you know, he slapped the hell out of that dude, you know, and that was revenge in a way for all of the black mothers who have been mistreated, the black children who have been mistreated. You know, it was shown right there on the 60 foot wide screen. It was a powerful moment. Well, hey, good. After that came what's called the black exploitation films, and I was watching a bit of Superfly, and I noticed something. Putting aside all of this talk about black exploitation, it struck me in looking at it so many years later that what it really was was a fairly standard indie film. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a film like an indie film. Yep. Yes. Yes. You are. Yes. You are. You are right. I think that term was really misused for that wave of movies. Exploitation. How? I think that so many doors in Hollywood were locked to black filmmakers that when Melvin Van Peoples made Sweet Sweetbacks, a badass song for $500,000, and it ends up making like like more than $15 million. That was a success that Hollywood had to pay attention to. And so other filmmakers suddenly were able to get a foot through the door and make movies. And you had stars starting to rise up. Richard Roundtree and Shaft. You had Jim Brown. And you had Bernie Casey. And you had Pam Greer. You had uh, a whole group of actresses and actors who all of a sudden became important figures in black cinema. When you're looking at these films now, and we separate them from how they were viewed at the time, I mean, given that so many films these days, you know, are about drug dealers and fighting police and all of that, it seems to me that maybe we can look at them out of context and just see them as part of American independent film. Yes, you are so right. I wanted to focus on that era for the simple fact that it's easy to throw barbs at the films because by doing that, you ignore why the films had to be made in the first place. White Hollywood was not putting blacks in mainstream films. Rarely. I mean, rarely. I remember growing up in the 60s in Columbus, Ohio. And when I was 12 years old, so I was in the sixth grade, that was the first time that my mother would allow me to go to the movie theaters solo, just me. It was like a 12 block walk. And I would head to church on Sundays, come home, change my clothes, and I would get 50 cents from my mother to go to the movies. And so I'm sitting there mid to late 60s, in a movie theater, looking at the 60-foot screen. And the actors inside of the Garden Theater in Columbus, Ohio, on North High Street, who I saw were Rock Hudson, Doris Day, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, Liz Taylor. Never did I see a Black figure on the big screen when I was a kid in the 60s at this little theater. Then I grew up, of course, and went away to college. And when I came home from college during the summers of the mid-70s, that black exploitation era had started. 
And there was a cinema downtown called the Southern Theater. And they started showing movies like Shaft and Foxy Brown and Superfly. And they would be crowded. I mean, because we, people who were Black, suddenly had a reason to get dressed up and to go to the movies. And so it shifted between when I was a kid and I saw all these white faces and I fell in love with all those people. I mean, I loved Robert Mitchum and Liz Taylor and John Wayne. I mean, you know, I was a kid. We fall in love at the movies. You know, these are people on the 60 foot wide screen. And I fell in love with Hollywood. I fell in love with cinema. I fell in love with the movies. And it was only later when I got older, started reading books. And then I realized, wow, Hollywood kept blacks out of movies for decades. And that's, of course, some of the reason for this book. As you were talking, I thought back to another actor. I don't know if you mentioned him in the in the book. You must have. Woody Strode, who might have become a great Western actor because he was so good in so many films. He was absolutely. He went to UCLA. He was an athlete. Uh, he is mentioned in the book. He played in several John Ford Westerns, but he's another person who, if he had gotten a fair shot at Hollywood, he might have become a big star. He was an amazing actor. And, yeah. Well, hey, good. In May 1982, you focus a lot on this. There was an edition of People magazine and an article about how after that era of films, Black suddenly couldn't get noticed again in Hollywood Suddenly, in 1982, comes this article. In a way, all hell broke loose. Can you talk a little about that? And that was People magazine. Uh, they had an editor at the time, Landon Jones, who I went looking for. And I was able to track him down and have him tell me the whole story. He was surprised when he was talking to his staff about that issue. He was surprised at how few Blacks were in movies, and he wanted to do something about it. And so he devoted a big, big amount of space to the lack of Black appearances, Black folks in movies, and it got a lot of attention. It really didn't change much in Hollywood. Hollywood is a place that's slow to change, but for the first time, it shined a light on how non-inclusive Hollywood was at the time. It was a powerful issue. What year did Roots come out? 1976. Well, Roots, on the other hand, you don't really go into this, but we all know this is correct, that television was a lot better than film ever was. You had the first interracial kits on Star Trek, of all places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you had Roots. It sounds as if Roots should have transformed things, but then six years later, it obviously didn't. Right. Well, it's interesting. I remember getting out of college and sitting at home, looking at Roots, you know, that whole week when it came out. It was powerful. There had, you know, simply never been nothing on TV like it, showing Black life from slavery with the country's original sin. But the Alex Haley book, Richard, had first been optioned by Hollywood. It was going to be a major motion picture. And Haley became upset that he couldn't get an answer 
as to when the studio was going to hire a script writer and hire a cast. And he felt that they were screwing him around. So he dug into his own pocket to buy back the rights because the major motion pictures were afraid of putting blackness on the screen. So Haley then took it to David Wolper. He was a TV producer. And that's how Roots got made. And instead of being a one major motion picture, it became a multi-part series. So Hollywood was just afraid to put that story on the big screen. By that point, was the South still playing a tremendous role, do you think, in keeping Blacks off the screen, given that films have to play in theaters, whereas television is across the land? The South, as we know from the Civil War on, has had a very hard time dealing with race, and it still does. We look at what has been happening in Southern cities in the past, I don't know, 20 years, and you just don't see as much racial enlightenment as you'd like to see. I mean, even in the 70s, there were some studio executives who, when they would look at a book to turn into a script, to turn into a movie, they would say, but we won't make any money in the South. If the book and script had a Black theme, there were movies like Sounder that tended to do well, but movies that dealt with today, that dealt with the 1970s, 1980s, maybe, all of it can't be laid on the South. Some of it is just the stereotype built into some of the studio people, too. They wouldn't even send certain movies to the South. It's sort of along that storyline. If you make a Black movie, it won't sell overseas in Hong Kong or maybe Tokyo, blah, blah, blah. But of course, that has proven to be a big lie. Hollywood helped spread some of those lies too, Hollywood folks. So they just wouldn't work hard enough to sell a movie overseas. And then you saw the Black Panther, uh, which exploded overseas. And you saw a movie that I was involved with. The Butler played in 76 foreign countries and did very well. And so Hollywood itself just didn't work as hard to market those movies as they did for movies with white leading characters. So that's on Hollywood, too. It's also kind of strange, given the fact that there have been years where people like Eddie Murphy or Will Smith with number one box office appeal in the world and in the United States. And even now, the number one box office seller is Dwayne Johnson. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. But that doesn't mean that Hollywood will make more black movies. There was a study that came out, and I mentioned this in my book, a study by a major research organization. I'm flipping through the pages of the book trying to find it right now. It said that Hollywood, because of its anti-Black stance, leaves about $400 million on the floor every year, every year, because they aren't making a significant amount of movies 
that might serve in the inner city communities. And then they get shocked when a movie like The Butler opens in first place. That movie really almost didn't happen until some folks got involved and really wanted to make it. And then it opens number one at the box office for three straight weeks. And it was in the top 10 for seven straight weeks. And it almost didn't get made. That is a prime example of Hollywood was almost getting ready to leave. You know, I think that movie made $120 million in the U.S. (laughs) And, you know, and Hollywood almost didn't make it. Jumping ahead, because I would like to ask a couple of questions about your career. These days, things have changed again, hopefully permanently, when you've got people like Ava DuVernay or Steve McQueen putting out films, and particularly in the streaming world, you have things like small acts, which Mm -hmm. are four films. Mm -hmm. You have all of this material from Ava DuVernay. You have Shonda Rhimes as the number one purveyor of a certain kind of television show. You've got still of Oprah Winfrey. Do you think it's permanently changed, or are we just in another place where, you know, Hollywood's so white just takes a break from being so white. I think it has definitely changed. And the streaming services have done it. I mean, you have Hulu, Apple, Netflix, all of those companies seem to be spreading their arms wide, welcoming black and brown filmmakers, filmmakers who weren't used to sitting at the table. Spike Lee made The Five Bloods. He said, When he went into the Netflix offices, he seen black executives. He said he didn't see that at the other offices that he went into. This is current. This is current stuff that is still going on. And so he took the five bloods to Netflix where he was welcomed and it made money. It turned a profit. Ava DuVernay is a remarkable filmmaker. She's going to be heard from in the years to come. And I think that the streaming services have put Hollywood on notice. There were two years, 2015, 2016, where you had no Black Oscar nominees. And of course, that ignited the Oscar So White movement. You know, that was only six years ago. Things have changed. I don't know on the big screen if they've changed all that much, but they've certainly changed on the small screen, all for the better. Well, I'm not sure what a big screen is nowadays. Maybe we'll learn about it again in six months. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I keep thinking that one of the things that happened is because streaming services are always looking for programming of several different types, whether it be gay and lesbian, black, Latino. Right, right. That without movie theaters for two years, that's what we had. Right. And it changed things and hopefully changed them permanently. I think that we're going to see some amazing work in the years ahead. And if we have to watch it on the small screen, then so be it. I still love movie theaters. I want movie theaters to survive. I still love going to the movies. I still love watching actors on the big screen. But, you know, times have changed and there's a lot of creatives 
out there who are going to keep fighting to find places to show their work. And if it's on the small screen, then they'll do that. Well, hey, good. How did you become a journalist? Was that always in your path? No, no. I went to college. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and I majored in city planning. So I was going to be a city planner, but that didn't work out. I moved to New York City, and I went through the executive training program at Macy's department store. Uh, So I was a low-level floor manager at Macy's, and I was in the towels and sheets department. So if anybody out there is listening (laughs) and wants to change their career paths, it can happen and, and it can work out for the better. Anyway, I was at Macy's for two years and I was fired. And the store manager who fired me asked me to write an essay about what I want to do in life. She said, because it's time for you, Will, to focus. She said, you're not ruthless enough to survive in retelling. Ruthless. She was probably correct in that. So I went home to my little apartment in Brooklyn, New York, and scribbled some stuff out on like four pages. And she read and she said, whatever you do in life, Will Hager, you should go and become a writer. She's still a dear friend of mine. Her name is Janet, and she lives in Florida now. And I often thank her when I see her for firing me at Macy's department store. Anyway, I started writing newspaper editors around the country, and I got a job on a little paper in Charleston, West Virginia. As a copy editor, I wrote articles on my days off, and they got in the paper. And I sent those articles to John Craig, who was the editor at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And I worked on that newspaper for two years as a full-time reporter. And then I went to the Boston Globe and became a national correspondent, then a foreign correspondent. And I traveled all over the world, watched Nelson Mandela walk out of prison in South Africa, where he had been for 27 years, locked up. 2003, I joined the Washington Post and became a national staff writer there. I still write sometimes for the Washington Post, but mostly now it's books. You did write an article about Poitier when he died, and that got some publicity too. Did you ever meet him? Uh, no, never met the great Sidney Poitier. <laughs> what a heroic, what a giant of a man. In writing this book, did you run across any lost films, films you couldn't see that none of us could see, that you found were very important and you know, that are kind of like almost holy grails at this point, if they showed up? Mm -hmm. And that's a great question. There's one film, and it's called Cane River. Cane River. It's about Blacks who own a Southern plantation. And it was thought that it was lost for many years. And it was recently found. Lovely film, Cane River. There are some Oscar Michaud films that are still lost, that we haven't found yet, which is sad. And then there's the film version of Porgy and Bess. I recall seeing it. It must have been at the 67 showing on television, but it can never be seen because nobody will let it be seen. What's the story on that? Yes, all kind of squabbles with the Samuel Goldwyn family who owns the rights to the film. I recently read someplace 
where I think it is D. Rees who plans to remake that film. I don't know why. That's a tough one to make. I mean, it's an opera. You know, it doesn't sound like something that should be remade. At the same time, it would be nice to see. I recall a great performance by Sammy Davis Jr. And one of the few times we get to see Pearl Bailey on screen. Yes, it was Sammy Davis Jr. stole that movie. He should have been Oscar nominated, by the way, and he wasn't. But he stole that movie. He was astounding in that movie. But alas, he he didn't get his his due desserts. When you're writing these biographies, I've talked to various biographers, and some say that as you uncover more, you uncover the dark side of the individual, and in some cases, you no longer like them as much. Was that the case with any of the people that you've written about? No. If I can zero in on this book, I started to grow sad. So many of these Black actors and actresses died young. I'm sure from the stress of the career. I mean, it's hard to be successful as an actor, white or black or Asian. I mean, it's just a difficult hill to climb. But my goodness, when you're black and it's 1951 and you have to go to a city to visit somebody to do a reading for a role that they might want to cast you in, you have to walk out of that hall or that hotel, wherever you're at, and try to find some place to sleep that night. I mean, these people all work in a segregated nation. And I think that it's easy to forget that because everybody wants to go to a movie and smile, you know, hooray for Hollywood. But this book is all about hooray for the truth too. I love movies. I think that comes through in the book, but I also love the truth. You've been listening to an interview with Will Haygood, whose book is titled Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World. I don't think it's on right now, but Oscar Michaud films show up periodically on the Criterion app. So you can find these films if you look for them. And it's a fascinating history because it is a history that we have not learned about. You are absolutely right. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.